Welcome, everybody, to episode 55 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Bill Roggio. We are senior fellows at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, and we edit FTD's Long War Journal. We've been doing this for a very long time. Bill, you want to say hi? Hello, everyone. Um, we're welcoming you to this episode, but we're not in a good mood, obviously, and you probably aren't either. Um, if you've been following our work for years, you know that we spent a lot of time working on Afghanistan, and of course, Afghanistan has now fallen. The Taliban has retaken almost the entire country with just some very minor exceptions. The capital of Kabul has surrendered. The Taliban and its allied jihadists, including al-Qaeda, are streaming into the capital and are getting ready to announce the resurrection of their Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, the same regime that was toppled in 2001. I think a lot of, there are a lot of people that Bill and I have encountered through the years who are probably silently glad about this or happy about this. They were basically, you know, a lot of people we've met along the way were effectively rooting for the Taliban. That's a sad truth, a sad reality of a lot of the coverage of the war in Afghanistan. And Bill and I were never that, of course. We never did that. Um, we were always critical of the U.S.-led war there. We've been documenting the failures there for many years. We've been critical of Afghanistan's leadership. We've been critical um, all the way around, but we never had this moral imbalance between our side and their side. Our side committed many problems and had many faults, and there are many things to critique, and there needs to be accountability, and we're going to get into that. But their side is a bunch of bloodthirsty jihadists and terrorists, barbarians, who are now going to impose their will on the Afghan people. And a lot of the commentary that you're going to see about this matter is ignorant. A lot of the commentary you're going to see about this doesn't really understand what's actually happened here. That doesn't mean that Bill and I um, have endorsed this war effort for a long time. If you've listened to us, we've been very critical of it. But it means that if you're not upset today or mad today that the Taliban and Al-Qaeda have retaken Afghanistan, then just stop listening to us. Just turn off the podcast. This isn't for you, right? If that's who you are, if that's what you're about, then go do something else. Don't listen to us because you're not our audience. But for anybody who has served in Afghanistan, first of all, I'd like to say this isn't your fault. This is the fault of your leaders. Your leaders are incompetent and inept and have been incompetent and inept for 20 years, right? Twenty. Amen to that, Tom. 20, Amen. 20 years. Actually, longer than that. We're going to get into that in a second. Actually, since the 1990s even. Um, they never know what they were doing. But if you're a service member and you're part of our audience and you served in Afghanistan, and you're wondering, you know, what was what was this, you know, all about? Why did I go do this? Look, chances are the U.S. military asked you to do something it shouldn't have asked you to do. It put you in a situation it shouldn't have put you in, um, and you're probably feeling pretty upset today about, you know, the loss of life you witnessed around you and 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 potentially the damage done to you. All I could say is to those folks out there, listen, as fellow Americans, it ain't your fault, right, Bill? It's not your fault. It's not. Thank you for your service. It is, however, the fault of America's leaders. And let's get into this for a second, Bill. I uh, was thinking about, you know, I had somebody ask me to write a short piece about, you know, what went wrong. And I said, you can't, you can't write a short piece about what went wrong. There's a whole website called Long War Journal, which has been documenting this for so many years now that it's an encyclopedia at this point of what went wrong. Um, Tom, if, if I may interject on no, that, please. that's, you know, that's not just a book. It might be two or three. It's it, it's volumes of what went. We're wrong. going to write that book. To, we're going to write a book, and it's going to be no holds barred. I mean, we've we've been talking about this for a long time, and one of the last things I have to do 
in this regard. I mean, the story isn't over of Afghanistan or the jihad, of course. And, you know, this this podcast is called Generation Jihad. And, folks, the jihadis just got a major boost to their cause. And a whole, no, a whole new generation of jihadis are going to flow out of this. So if you think that the jihad or the terrorist threat around the world is over, well, you're sadly mistaken. I wish it was because we could go to something else with our lives. Um, but the failure in America doesn't doesn't mean the failure of America in Afghanistan doesn't mean that the jihadi threat now is gone. Quite the opposite. Um, but no, let's talk about the failures here, Bill. You know, somebody asked me to write this short piece about the failures uh, in Afghanistan, and as I got thinking to it, I had to go through. I end up starting with the presidents, and it it strikes me is that each president, really going back to the 1990s, made terrible decisions. So let's think about it, Bill. You know, Al-Qaeda really starts gaining steam in the 1990s. Most of the planning for 9-11 happens during the 1990s, really, through 2000. Um, you know, they, Al-Qaeda attacks America. And you can go through the 9-11 Commission report and various other sources, and you can see that President Bill Clinton at the time passed up numerous opportunities to potentially kill Osama bin Laden. That was a failure. You know, that was a failure, right, Bill? That's strike one. And Absolutely. That was a failure. Um I don't, you know, despite the revisionist PR narrative that the Clinton team was able to get out and the compliant press played along with, they didn't really take Al-Qaeda all that seriously. Uh, you know, yeah, there were a few people in the Clinton administration who did, but overall they didn't. And Bill Clinton himself, President Clinton himself certainly didn't. He, he passed up opportunities again there in the 9-11 Commission report along those lines. Here's a second one, Bill. President George W. Bush and, and his Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld. Um you know, you and I have talked about this many times. I've written about it. We've talked about it. In the weeks following 9-11, what should have happened, Bill? What should have happened? Yeah, instead of outsourcing the operation to hunt and kill bin Laden and his cadre, um, which is what they did, um, the U.S. should have deployed every division that it could into Afghanistan and did the hunt itself. Um, when when bin Laden was surrounded in Tora Bora, you needed everything there. The order should have been given to, um, the ultimatum should have been given to that they they walk either they walk out or nothing walks out of that area. I'm not talking kill every frog, every blade of grass, every tree. I would have decimated the place. It would have decapitated Al Qaeda, and it could maybe maybe it wouldn't have. Um, we don't know the after effects of that, but we do know that bin Laden wouldn't have lived for an additional 10 years and his cadres of followers who ro risen through the ranks of Al-Qaeda, they wouldn't have been available to help spread the jihad ac across the globe. Yep, and Secretary of Rumsfeld wrote a note, one of his snowflakes that's been now part of the Afghanistan papers released by the Washington Post in which he worried about occupying eastern Afghanistan like the Russians did, like the Soviets did. Um and I, I read that recently again as I was watching this, his, thinking about this history of failure, and I just thought about how completely inept that thinking was. This wasn't about occupying any part of Afghanistan. The point was after 9-11, America had the opportunity or should have had the opportunity to use decisive, overwhelming force to end those who attacked us on 9-11. This should have been it. If there was a chance, a, a chance to actually end the war quickly and swiftly and come home and not get into this whole 20-year debacle— if there was a chance to actually deliver the death blow to Al-Qaeda, that was it. It was that then and there, December 2001 in the Tora Bora Mountains. Instead, the U.S. failed. The Bush administration failed, and they walked. And that was a big failure. This is the failure that many people don't understand to this day because, in fact, Al-Qaeda under bin Laden 
played a key role in forming the insurgency that has now claimed success and overrun Kabul. That's what people don't get. You know, we fought to get the Bin Laden files released. One of those files from mid-2010, for example, says that uh, recounts to Bin Laden from Atiyah Abdul Rahman, his lead lieutenant, that in fact Al-Qaeda had very strong military activity across eight provinces of Afghanistan. Bill and I are not going to get into this now again today, but at the time the U.S. was was in denial about Al-Qaeda's presence in Afghanistan and falsely claiming that it was basically minimal of just 50 to 100 fighters. Meanwhile, contemporary, contemporaneous and evidence like this showed if anybody was really looking and paying attention, that Al-Qaeda had actually played a big role in helping the Taliban make a comeback and launch this insurgency, which was ultimately successful. So in addition to that, of course, thousands of, of fighters elsewhere swore their, and countries elsewhere, swore their allegiance to Osama bin Laden, and the Al-Qaeda terror empire grew. This was a fatal mistake, a bad mistake, in late 2001 not getting bin Laden. So Bill Clinton passes up opportunities to drone bin Laden to death in the 1990s, President Bush and Secretary Donald Rumsfeld failed to use overwhelming force to get not just bin Laden, but Ayman al-Zawahiri, who for all we know is still alive and in charge of al-Qaeda to this day, although we, you know, there's a lot we don't know about his operations, but whatever, at least he's been leading al-Qaeda uh, for a decade more, uh, for a decade after bin Laden's death. Mullah Omar, who defied America, contrary to what the Taliban apologists will tell you, Mullah Omar, who defied America and said he wasn't going to turn over Osama bin Laden, he walked. And he died of natural causes sometime in 2013 in mysterious circumstances. And so you can point this all out. Everybody likes to talk about how the 2001 invasion of Afghanistan was successful. You and I don't think that, right, Bill? It wasn't successful because America didn't do what it needed to do right then and there. Well, I think there's no further evidence than the Taliban returning to power, Tom. I mean, that was one of the goals, to eject the uh, the Taliban from power and pursue um, al-Qaeda's leadership. And neither of those objectives were uh, achieved. Well, in fact, the only thing you could say that was successful about the 2001 invasion is that it ended the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. That's the only thing you could say. 20 years later, almost to the day, guess what? It has now been restored. So the only success you could really point to of that initial invasion, now you can point to other successes, for example, tapping down the terrorist threat, taking out senior terrorists who were plotting against America, of course, that stuff occurred. And the Bin Laden raid eventually in 2011 was a success. Of course, we're going to get to that in a second. But the initial invasion, the main thing it did, the only thing it really did, was topple the Islamic era of Afghanistan. Yes, some senior al-Qaeda guys um, were taken out then. Yes, some senior Taliban commanders were taken out then, but not nearly enough. And not the right ones. Not all the right ones. And so... The main thing you could point to from that invasion that was successful has now been undone. And so it is It is now, unequivocally, a failure. Now let's go to President Obama. Now there were plenty of other mistakes by, by President Bush. And I'm, I'm, we're just sort of skipping over things here just to give you the, the outline of all of it, um, the strategic decision making. Let's think about President Obama here. He comes in and he triangulates basically between the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War. And he basically proclaims, although he doesn't, I don't think he actually uses these words, he basically portrays Afghanistan as the good war. I recently reviewed his speech from December 2009 in which he said that it was in our vital national interest, this is his phrasing, to uh, basically stand up the capacity of the Afghans to fight. And so he announces an 18-month surge of forces to build up the Afghan capacity. Now, because part, partly because the Europeans didn't do their job early in the early years of building up an Afghan security force, um, the Bush administration went left power without having any kind of Afghan security force in place that was actually capable of holding its own. This was, so this is years later now. There was a security force, of course, but it was not nearly capable of holding its own. And so basically, President Barack Obama stand, says he's going to stand up this force. 
he's going to deploy America's to stand up this force. And Bill, they, they, they fight this counterinsurgency. It's during this time that more Americans are killed in combat in Afghanistan during President Obama's tenure than at any other time in the 20-year history. This is something people are glossing over. You know, you hear us critical of, of right-wing presidents or, or Republican presidents. Well, we're also critical, obviously, of Democrat presidents. This isn't about politics for us. And I, I noticed a lot of lefties are giving Barack Obama a pass here on, online because it was during his tenure that more Americans were killed in Afghanistan than at any other time. And for what, Bill? For what? Yeah, um, <laughs> Tom, I don't even want to go there. If the, <laughs> I know, I know, we're a little angry, but it just just documenting these failures. We, we, you and I actually did not endorse that counterinsurgency at the time. People, yeah, don't, people uh, don't know it, this. It, people don't know this, and it wasn't just the eighteen month timeline on it. We knew that they weren't actually going to fight in a way that was going to win. He didn't actually want to fight to win, and so you, basically, our critique was: don't sacrifice American lives if you're not fighting to win, right? If, and let me let me just take that, Tom. So it's just the second to organize thoughts there. That surge in Afghanistan was the most cynical thing I've seen in my lifetime. They More soldiers died during that period of time than died throughout the rest of the war in Afghanistan. Killed and wounded, maimed during that time period. When, when we knew, not just the time period, as you said, but we knew the strategy was wrong. It wasn't holistic. There was never a plan to deal with Pakistan. Anyone with, you know, anyone who is honest about what's happening in Afghanistan and understands the situation would have and should have known that. And he executed that surge for political reasons to um, to appease generals, to show that he wasn't giving up on Afghanistan. But his objective the whole time was to leave the country. It was a political, um, one of his political uh, planks, if I recall. So... Yeah, this is where where my anger and contempt comes in on. But, you know, I don't save it just for President Obama. Um, I save it for all of them. So by 2010, 2011, America's desperately seeking a so-called peace deal with the Taliban. Is this a serious superpower? Is this how a superpower behaves, right? That you, you send all these Americans in for an ill-fated effort. And then you desperately turn around and say, well, we can make a bunch of excuses for the Taliban. We don't really have to defeat them anyway. And of course, those talks ended in a fiasco, a total fiasco. The history, I've told the history in multiple places. The history is also in Steve Cole's director at S a little bit, although he's, he's harsh on it, but not nearly as harsh as, as I am on it, or I think people should be. Um, you can find other part, things that Bill and I have talked about over time with that. But what's interesting is that this is this shows you the absolute ambivalence that was in this conflict from the beginning, right? There was ambivalence by the Bush administration. They didn't want to go in holistically because they didn't want to, they had some idea that to do so would be occupying Afghanistan instead of just eliminating the terrorist threat once and for all. And then he comes along Barack Obama, President Obama, and he's ambivalent. He orders the surge while simultaneously having in his mind that by 2012, he's going to declare that he brought the war in Iraq to a responsible end and says he's going to do the same thing in Afghanistan. And by 20, so they start pursuing, desperately pursuing this peace deal with the Taliban, which doesn't work. They end up walking away from the table eventually in 2013, if I recall correctly. Um, then um, in during this period, also, um, the U.S. and NATO declare an end to combat operations in 2014, right? Was that the end of combat operations, Bill? Absolutely not, Tom. I mean, that's sort of the, you know, that was the big lie. The Afghans have stood up. Uh, this is General Dunford told this, and then General Nicholson and General Miller. They've told us about the 
the, the reliability and strength. And they told us the Afghan security forces have more than 300 um, soldiers and police and airmen in the ranks. And yeah, 300,000, sorry about that, yes. And that they're strong and they have the equipment and they have the training and they have the commandos and they have everything. And then yet over the, and, and yet uh, what we all watched was the collapse and that was a collapse of years in the making of the Taliban whittling down their strength, breaking their will until, and then when, you know, the offensive began and the Taliban began taking over uh, districts in, in the beginning, starting in May and then to, up to the last weeks when it, when the districts became irrelevant and they started taking over provincial capitals and provinces themselves, the Afghan forces collapsed because of these, these years of failure that we've witnessed. The, um, you know, we're not good at training militaries, clearly. See Iraq, now see Afghanistan. We try to make them in our image instead of making them the way that they need to be made. And everyone involved in that, in that training program, in, this, in deciding how to build it, they need to be held account for this. The failures, Tom, and you know, it, it, it goes on so many levels. And that's what's frustrating about this. If there was just one or two failures in here, it, we may not have it may not have led to this, but it's just a compilation of failures. It's accumulation of failures that brought us here. So, amen. Uh, so you know, President Obama orders the raid at Gap Bin Laden. Great, uh, I, I give him credit for that. Um, just as I give the credit uh, to the Bush administration for stopping another terrorist attack after 9-11, although I don't approve of everything that was done, obviously. I do think that generally there were other attempts to attack America after 9-11 that were stopped. And I think that bin Laden um, absolutely uh, being brought to justice, as they would say, uh, under Obama was a great thing. He did that. But of course, you know, there was all sorts of other baggage that went along with all of this. Um, and obviously, President Obama wasn't committed to fighting in Afghanistan. President Bush wasn't committed really to fighting in Afghanistan. His attention was distracted by Iraq and other things um, and the, the failures we just talked about. Then you get to President Trump now. He comes into office in 2017. And his instinct is to get out. And I know you and I were talking to people at the time and said, okay, get out if you want to get out. Just don't. Don't throw the Afghans under the bus, you know, figure out a way to, to leave in a staged manner that, that transfers to them. And if it falls, it falls. But, you know, don't don't throw them under the bus. And so we know that President Trump in August 2017 reluctantly signed off on a um, so-called strategy to to achieve victory in Afghanistan. He used the word victory. Um, you and I said at the time publicly Look, we understand what they're trying to do here. They're trying, this is the last ditch effort to try and stand up the Afghans against the jihadi insurgency, to try and salvage something. Um, it, but it isn't going to lead to victory. The whole idea, there's no way there's any going to be victory under this plan. It was a modest increase of several thousand Americans were going to go to mainly to train Afghan forces and uh, while conducting counterterrorism operations. You and I knew that that wasn't going to solve things at all, but the whole idea was the last ditch effort to basically prop up the Afghans. Um, but what happened? By 2018, just a year later, President Trump had abandoned all of that, all of that entirely. And by the way, part of that strategy in 2017 was to get tough on Pakistan. They abandoned that too. In 2018, uh, he abandons the whole thing. And what happens is, somewhat comically, he and his advisors, including Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, decide to pick up this track that was laid by the Obama administration by Secretary, then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who Pompeo criticized harshly on other terms, they then pick up the Obama-Clinton track for negotiations with the Taliban, the track that the Obama administration walked away from. The Trump administration then goes full steam down 
they go full steam down this so-called peace process with the Taliban beginning in 2018. And they, they appoint special representative Zalmay Kalilazad in charge of the negotiations. If there is not a deep dive into Zalmay Kalilazad's career after this, including the last three years, to find out exactly what he's been doing, and, you know, uncover the paper trail, all of his communications, the entire, everything he's been doing, if Congress and journalists and others don't investigate that, that will be a crime for history. Because it's obvious, if you haven't been paying attention, it's obvious that he was not working in the cause of peace. He didn't achieve anything that could actually be called peace at all. All he did, all the Trump administration did, was uh, begin the withdrawal of American forces. But you know what? You didn't need some, to dress up a withdrawal deal with the Taliban to accomplish that. President Barack Obama draw, d drew down from 100,000 troops to less than 10,000 without doing a deal with the Taliban. The U.S. could have gotten the Taliban to agree to a narrow deal, with, which was one line. We're leaving. Just don't attack us while we're leaving because you'll make us come back. That's it. And guess what? The Taliban would have agreed to that. But you know what happened? They try to dress it up as a peace process. They try to dress this up as they were bringing a negotiated solution for the Afghan government and the Afghan people. You and I were virtually alone, Bill, in saying that this was nonsense from the beginning. All of official Washington went along with this. The U.S. military went along with this. The State Department went along with this. A lot of people in Congress went along with this. Certainly people in the White House and the state and, and went along with this. And a lot of the people who are fans of Trump and think he was tough on terror, well, this is a guy who wanted to invite the Taliban to Camp David just months after the Taliban released a video celebrating 9-11. This is a guy whose Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said that was the Taliban was now going to work with us to, uh, alongside America to hunt down and quote-unquote destroy al-Qaeda. President Trump repeated the same language, claim, claiming the Taliban was going to be killing terrorists for us. This is what he said. Is this a serious power, America, to have a President and Secretary of State vouching for the Taliban like this, Bill? Is that a serious power? Is this a serious... Uh, entity at this point? I don't know. I mean, to me, this is totally unserious. But let's get into what this actually did. Beyond this silliness, beyond this ridiculousness of endorsing the Taliban as a counterterrorism partner, what you and I knew right away, and we said right away, is that the, this peace process with the Taliban, all it's doing is throwing the Afghan government under the bus. That's all it's doing. They're going to make sure now that the Taliban comes back to power. And Bill, what happened from February of 2020 when this phony deal. This really a withdrawal deal that they dressed up as a peace deal. What happened between then, February 2020, and May of 2021 when the Taliban launches its blitzkrieg? Yeah, the Taliban just kept pushing. Um, that's when it started laying the groundwork for this offensive. It began to increase the numbers of districts that it controlled, probably doubled over that time period to somewhere around 80 percent um, in increase. Um, and while the Afghans, the while the Afghans are taking thousands of casualties, you know, you're here. Exactly. Bill, you and I have been hearing a lot of Americans say the Afghans wouldn't fight for their country. Folks, the Afghans did fight for their country. They were defeated while America was there because America pursued a feckless policy, a feckless diplomatic course that all it did was guarantee the Af the defeat of the Afghans. That's all it did. Thousands and thousands of Afghan security uh, member, force members and army personnel died between February 2020 and March, I'm sorry, May of 2021. Thousands. That is actually when the Afghan security forces were defeated. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's the, the untold story here. That that plan, it didn't, it, it demoralized the Afghans in many ways. The Afghan military knew that we were leaving. And... Yeah, if, if, if people are like, I can't believe the Afghans collapsed in just two weeks. 
This was years in the making. That's what people are missing about this. It was years of bad, um, uh, bad military strategy, uh, a failure in understanding the enemy, and a desire to just leave the country, and failure to understand the Al Qaeda's singular maximalist goal, which was the reestablishment of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. That's what the Taliban has been doing all the all along, and we failed to recognize this, and. Our failures directly impacted the security forces of Afghanistan. And that's why the, this collapse happened. Just in July, just in July, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, claimed that there were 300,000 Afghan personnel. Actually, President Biden claimed there were 300,000 Afghan personnel, a, uh, members of the ANDSF on July, in July 8th, I believe it was. Um that were capable of defending their country. What General Mark Milley said was that they had the capacity. I'm sorry, they had the capacity to defend their country. That was that was, and he said that in late July. Within weeks, within weeks, the whole country had been toppled, had been captured. Right? What happened? Well, obviously, the Afghans didn't have 300,000 well-equipped army personnel, as President Biden claimed and Milley vouched for. Right? They didn't, did they, Bill? They didn't have 300,000. That was a mythical. That was a mythical number. It was a number that was on paper. It was a, because. Of, because the Pentagon and American military leaders haven't really been serious about this in a long time. It was a paper number, a paper army, yeah. you know. The, the ghost soldier issue, Tom. The, you know, the, and, and I just want to mention this. I know it might be a little out of context in what you said. We built an army in the Western image instead of building the army that Afghanistan needed. That's a whole podcast in itself. Um, but all of these things led to when, when, the, when, the, when the time came and the Taliban really began to press – they were just not prepared, and U.S. military and U.S. intelligence officials and U.S. and and and, and Trump and Biden administration officials believed that the Afghans had something to stop this Taliban offensive, and and they didn't. And and real quick on you know we how do we know that they had no clue what they were talking about? What was the initial estimate when this first started, when the Taliban launched their offensive? They said. U.S. officials would say, and this is military and, and government officials, would say the Taliban has a year according, or the, the Afghan government won't be in trouble for at least a year. They have a year. So this was, they were hoping for the decent interval so that, you know, if things really broke down, there was time and then they could just throw the Afghans under the bus. That quickly, quickly shifted to six months that the Afghan government would be in threat. Then it went to 60 it went to i think it was 60 three, to 90 the, days yeah. yeah 60 or yeah went to six months then 60 to 90 days and then within a couple of days they started to say a week if not days you know uh you know if that isn't not understanding what was going on here if that isn't an intelligence failure, if that's not a failure in understanding your enemy and your allies, I don't know what is. I'm seeing officials, you know, on the, you, um, you know, of course they're anonymous, right? Because they won't put their name to it. But they're saying we knew it was happening all along. We we understood this. We made this estimate. Really? Then why? Then why did it go from? One year to six months to sixty to ninety days to a week to days to hours, all in the span of what time? I think that was within a month, maybe, or maybe over the course of three. It was months, the course of weeks, was. but let's let's make a distinction yeah. here because when we talk about intelligence failures, I mean, there's a lot of CIA types on Twitter right now who are very angry at the idea that there's a uh, intelligence failure coming from their shop. 
you and I aren't talking about a intelligence failure from those folks. I have no idea what the CIA's ultimate estimate was on this. There's some indicating reporting that the CIA and ODNI, you know, were warning that Kabul could be overthrown quickly. But what we're talking about is the the failure by the military commanders. I mean, obviously they're re- receiving intelligence reporting from their own channels or their own assessment. Uh, you know, I mean, I I think that the U.S. intelligence community probably revised their their uh, their timeline quickly, like you just said as well. But what I'm what we're focusing on here is very simple. I'm not talking about any sort of classified assessments that we couldn't see. Here's here's what I'm talking about. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley in late July says the Afghans have the capacity to keep the fight going and to protect their country, defend their country. That was late July. They clearly didn't, right? So what was he relying on, right? There had to be some intelligence reporting or some accounting of all this that he was relying on to say that. And clearly that was wrong. The President of the United States said that, and clearly it was wrong. Now, maybe maybe they were ignoring or spinning intelligence reports that said that that was wrong. It wasn't the case. But the point is, is that there's plenty of years here and months here of the failure that I'm focusing in on is the fact that the American side was saying there is this large fighting force in place that's capable of defending the country, and that was not the case. Uh, was not the case at all. Because why? The Afghans have been hollowed out during this phony peace process. The ANDSF have been hollowed out. The Taliban and al-Qaeda were being playing, they were playing for victory while the U.S. side was forcing Kabul to play for a draw. And we know there's the ghost soldier issue, there's corruption, there's Afghan leadership failures. I'm not vouching for the Afghan leadership here at all, okay? But... The point is, is that that's what I look at when I talk about all this. Like, how did they not know that there wasn't anything left to defend the country? Yeah, and and Tom, I don't think you're going to disagree with me on this. It's just that when the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff talks about our estimate, right, it's not just a military estimate. This is coming input from CIA and other agencies. So that this is the assessment. The same thing with the administ- when administration officials say, say that. So no, and, and I'm a complete agreement with you. I'm just sort of making a broader yeah, no, point that there's you. a holistic intelligence failure here. The um, and that's where those that's ultimately where those those you know the one year sixty thirty to you know 30, sixty to nine whatever. Um, that's where that all comes in here. I want to be perfectly clear about this to our audience because I know a lot of you are listeners. The the people in you, the, you guys in the trenches at at, at in Department of Defense and CENTCOM and, and CIA, I know you guys knew and you guys know you knew, right? It's not you, it's what filtered up to the top, how they changed your assessments, how they politicized assessments to to present in a certain way that that fit political narratives. And that's that is just part of this failure as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, absolutely. And look, none of this is, is a... Uh, whitewash of the Afghans' problems. I mean, there's corruption. There's all sorts of issues here with the Afghan leadership. I mean, I think if you go through the specter in general uh, for Afghan reconstruction, Afghanistan reconstruction reports, this is a, a body that was independent oversight body that, that reports to Congress. You go through the reporting as we have for years, it's obvious that there were many problems with the, the Afghan side. We're not, we're not claiming otherwise. But if you look at it in the aggregate, we can't say that um, this absolves the U.S. side. The U.S. was saying things and acting and, and pursuing a policy that guaranteed failure in our view. And we can say that with we can say that with confidence, Bill, because why? Because we were saying it was guaranteed to fail as early as three years ago. You know, we said it was failing before that, but we said it was guaranteed to fail about three years ago. So so that's th- that's the hand that President Biden inherits, really. So President Trump then, you know, is drawing down. He leaves him with twenty five hundred troops. Um, they've got this servile deal that they did with the Taliban and with the May 1st withdrawal deadline. Now, look, 
I'm not making excuses for President Biden here um, at all. I'm just trying to, to paint the picture of this thing had slid out of control and the, the Afghans were actually losing before he even takes office. Um, that's the point that people are missing. And when people talk about keeping 2,500 or 3,500 people, uh, troops in place for President Biden, here's part of what they're missing in that. Um, the U.S. military, according to reporting in Wall Street Journal and elsewhere, their advice was let's keep 2,500 to 3,500 in place in order to do what? To basically string out the peace negotiations so we get a negotiated settlement. I mean, this is pure idiocy. It's, it should have been obvious to these U.S. military commanders that the Taliban had no interest and no desire to reach any sort of political settlement with anybody. They were fighting to win. And if you're going to keep 2,500 to 3,500 in the country for this impossible mission, then what is the point? All you're doing is you, and with the U.S. military, I would argue, was somewhat cynically using Afghan foot soldiers as cannon fodder to pursue this nonsensical policy, which does not make sense. Now, yes, 25 to 3,500 American troops in country probably would have kept the, this whole thing whole, together better than it than it was, right? It, you, you wouldn't have seen this rapid collapse. Maybe the U.S. could have better staged a withdrawal from the country, um, you know, over time, over the next, you know, months or whatever. But the point is, is that the the, the advice that, that President Biden and that presidents have been getting from the beginning from the U.S. military has been delusional. It's been out of step with reality. And this is one example of it. The they were, they were, what did they argue when President Biden says he wants to withdraw? They argue we need to keep doing what we were doing only with less troops. Well, wait a minute. You were losing with more troops. Now you think, you think that you can keep doing this indefinitely with less troops? I mean, what is the point here? And so this is why this is feckless leadership. Now, none of this is an excuse well, for— And Tom, can I add sure. to that? And not only keep them, but say that it would further negotiations with the Taliban, which we all know is insane. It's insane because, first of all, the U.S. had already agreed to a May 1st withdrawal date in that servile deal with the Taliban, in which the Taliban, there were no enforcement mechanisms or verification mechanisms, and we just said that the President of the United States, Trump, and his Secretary of State, Pompeo, had vouched for the freaking Taliban as America's counterterrorism partner, so you know they weren't going to hold them to account for anything when it came to al-Qaeda or compliance with any of this, the, this, the weak uh, counterterrorism provisions in the deal. So... You're going to do what? You're going to stay past May 1st, and then you're, you're going to get targeted by the Taliban because they're going to say you're, you're not in compliance with the deal, when in fact the Taliban was never really in compliance with the deal because the whole thing was a farce to begin with, right? And so now you're going to keep them past May 1st to pursue what? Another agreement with the Taliban after they just you, you just agreed, made an agreement with them that was farcical? I mean, this is, this is the—it's completely insane, right? So basically you're going to say— um, we're going to stay in country to try and get them to agree to have some sort of settlement with Kabul, with the Afghan government, when there is no evidence ever that they were willing to agree to that, you know? So if you're a U.S. service member or soldier, right, I mean, sh should, as a fellow American, should we ask you to go fight in a war like that with your leadership as this feckless and this stupid? No, I, I no, absolutely not. We can't fight this way ever again. That's why we're hopping mad today and also because of the tragedy that's unfolding here uh, with Afghans. But now none of this says, you know, look, my, my view is none of this is to um, uh, basically absolve President Biden. You know, he said things in his speeches in April and July that were flat false. He bought into all this these uh, these ideas about the Afghans being, you know, having the capacity to fight on their own. Clearly that wasn't true. Um, he... Um, I think the way he withdrew from Afghanistan led to this Saigon moment we're witnessing right now at the Kabul International Airport. I don't think he had any sort of uh, real desire to stay in Afghanistan no matter what. 
um, and he was going to get out. But at least you could have staged a withdrawal in a better better manner than this. And again, would 2,500 to 3,500 troops have sort of kept it better, held this thing together better than what we're witnessing? Of course. But it wasn't a winning strategy. It wasn't going to win. And it was going, it was, this is what people are missing, is that this thing had already effectively been lost on the battlefield because the U.S. was invested in delusional, a delusional view of the war. Right, Bill? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's the ultimate, the, they had a delusional view of, the Taliban and it's, um, they'd never understood its relationship with Al Qaeda. They didn't understand the Taliban's motivations or its, its, its primary objective. Again, the resurrection of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. They were delusional about the capacity of the Afghan security forces and our capacity to build them. Um, we can go um, the delusional about the Taliban, um, the negotiations, just delusion all around. That's a great word. Um, uh, you know, and it, it counters the other D words that we hear the, the, uh, mil the U.S. officials use when they talk about Al-Qaeda. I love the D words when it comes to, to Afghanistan, John. It's always Al-Qaeda has been decimated, defeated, um, you know, uh, destroyed, all of these other D words. I forget them. There's so many. Um, but the real D word for Afghanistan is delusional. Uh, yeah, I would say the real word for Afghanistan is defeat now. Um, well, oh, yeah, we can add another one to the, it. The though. delusion led to defeat. Desperation, Desperation despair. Yeah. So now, you know, let's go over, you know, a lot of people are trying to be defensive of the U.S. military's leadership. And again, if you're a service member, uh, this isn't on you. This is on your leaders. Um, and if, if you look at the U.S. military leadership over time, they have not, they're not inspiring confidence in anybody. Um, we just talked about how Millie was pitching a view of Afghanistan that was devoid for, of reality. Um, you know, but here's the thing, you know, you go back through, through all this, it was general, you know, Austin Scott Miller. He was the one, the last commanding general over us forces, Afghanistan and NATO, you know, he endorsed the whole phony peace process with the Taliban, which is during that time, the Afghan forces were carved, carved out, were, were hollowed out by the Taliban and Al Qaeda. He, you know, he, he endorsed this whole feckless strategy from 2018 on his predecessor, general Nicholson, you know, on his retirement, um, speech said that this war needs to end. Well, it ended, General. It ended in defeat. Congratulations. You know, you have uh, all sorts of other generals through the year. General Dunford, who the Taliban openly mocks as a loser because he's been clueless for years. Um, you know, he and his civilian advisors, I, I think that's probably apt. Um, you know, you can go back through the history of all this. General uh, James Mattis, who was Secretary of Defense, actually, uh, throughout part of this period, um, you know, he claimed there will be no military victory in Afghanistan. We're not seeking a military victory in Afghanistan. There's going to be a political settlement. He said this. Um, he, he vouched, you know, Habatul Akhanzada, the head of the Taliban, put out a statement a few years back. You and I posted it on Long War Journal. Mattis claimed that the, in this statement, Akhanzada had put forth a peace plan. Uh, remember that? Remember that? <laughs> one of my faves, Tom. Remember that one? Yeah. A complete misreading. Of, of what was better. Yeah, the Taliban put it out in English. You didn't even have to translate from Arabic or yeah. Pashto or Urdu. Yeah, no, you could read it in no, English, you know? Yeah, no chance of translation errors and misunderstanding of phrasings. It was English. So thanks for that, SecDef. Uh, not sorry to see you go. Uh, you can go. You can go through all these other, uh, you know, misstatements and errors through the years, and just completely devoid of, of reality and not understanding what's going on. I mean, I, you know, I sent you a link over the weekend too of of General Petraeus saying on Fox News in two thousand nine, "Well, Al Qaeda is not operating in Afghanistan anymore." I mean, that's a head slapping moment. We can you can go through all the evidence that we were accumulating at the time and in the years since that that was not true then and it's not true now. 
Um, you can go through the, the Pentagon's reporting where they said there's no strategic relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Okay, I think Sir Judin Haqqani is a strategic figure. He's the number two of the Taliban hierarchy. He's an Al-Qaeda man. There's a whole dossier on him. Haqqani's been in bed with Al-Qaeda for decades. Um, you know, so what are you talking about? It seems to me that his victory in Afghanistan, and it is his victory as the warlord, the shogun of the Taliban, seems to me that his victory is a victory for Al-Qaeda. But, you know, I guess the Pentagon policymakers couldn't see that one, right, Bill? And so... And so you go on and on and on like this. I mean, I'm not even doing a full accounting. I mean, how many times do we hear that, you know, that the situation had turned the corner or this or that? I mean, just delusional stuff, hiding statistics, spinning statistics. Um, you know, they, they claimed after the surge under Obama that the Taliban's momentum had been broken. Remember that? The Pentagon and the U.S. generals yeah. were, ta- were claiming oh. that, you know, using this phony analysis of enemy-initiated attacks. You and I wrote at the time 10 years ago now, more than 10 years ago now. Tom, this is one of my favorites right here. When the, when the Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta, said that the reason the Taliban is killing Americans at insider attacks was it was evidence that the, um, the Taliban was desperate, that, they, that they're on the verge of defeat. That was one of my favorite. The tired Taliban, basically. Well, here we are t- 10 years later. They're so tired, they rule Afghanistan. You know, my God, I'd forgotten the tired talk- Taliban talking point until you just said it. You know, that was one of our favorites uh, to, to bat around back in the days. And how many years do we hear that nonsense? The tired Taliban. Tired Taliban. Go. How tired do they look today? We got go t- to go tweet that one. But this is the, we have to wrap this up because there's a lot more we can say and we're going to say. I mean, I think there's going to be an Al-Qaeda moment coming in Afghanistan where they make their hand more clear uh, for everybody that this was, you know, their fight all along. You know, all I could say to Americans, um, you should be angry about this war for a lot of reasons. Um, but I think it, it speaks to a broader incompetence now of the American elite. Um, I think there's a total incompetence we're witnessing across the board. And this war, to me, has been evidence of that. And why is it incompetence? You could say, well, Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires and we were never going to make it work. Okay, but there were plenty of other things that could have been done through the years that weren't. Plenty of other paths that were chosen that weren't, that could have been chosen that weren't. Um, and because, you know, that's what we've said all along is that you should have, you'd be clear eyed about the decision you're making. And my point in all this is that what I go back through the 20 years of failure, it's clear to me that they were never clear eyed about the decisions they were making, that they always, you know, half-assed or, you know, uh, you know, were, had their, were blinded to what was going on or lied about what was going on. I mean, there's corruption involved here. You know, there were all the controversies attended withholding detainees and all that that flowed out of this conflict. I mean, it's just on and on and on we can go about all this. And the point is is that um, you can't defend the conduct of this war um, when you were aware of how many failures there were. And as we go forward here in our history, I don't know what, what, what comes from America next. I think we're in trouble for a lot of reasons beyond this. But, um, you know, there needs to be accountability for these failures. There needs to be accountability. There needs to be... Um, some sort of mechanism for saying, you know what, the emperor was nude all along. Yeah, Tom, I, I, if any good can count come of this horror, this two decades of horror is that, and I'm not, I, I'm, I'm very pessimistic of this, but I'm, I, I have to have hope somewhere, is that the lessons can be learned and the problems could be fixed. I hope the U.S. military, its leadership, I hope our politicians, I hope our intelligence services are able to honestly reflect on what happened and do what they need to do to change these bureaucracies, to change the culture, to fix this. Because at the end of the day, 
American, American lives are lost because of their failures. And you know what? If you're at the CIA, you could hide. If you're an administration official, you could often hide. But you military commanders, you're sending your, these sons, our sons and daughters, our, our brothers and sisters, our fathers and daughters into battle. And they're dying for a losing cause. And you need to learn to stand up. You need to have the courage to resign when you're giving orders to execute that you know will fail. And you need to be, you need to be critical when the time comes to be critical. It's not just about saluting and saying, yes, sir, and having that can-do attitude. There's much more to this. There's lives at stake. There's American prestige at stake, our, our place in the world. Stop being subservient generals and stand up for what is right. Well, hey, man, the only thing I'll add to that is it isn't just the Americans they send to battle. You know, um, this is part, but I think it's Americans being too cavalier about since 2014, tens of thousands of Afghans have died. Absolutely. Have died yes. trying to protect their country and defend their country. And a lot of Americans today are saying, well, you know, why should we fight if they won't fight? No, they fought, folks. They fought under corrupt, inept leadership, both on the Afghan side and on the American side. They fought and they died. And now they lost. And so if that's a defensible war effort for you, then you can just stop listening to us. Amen, Tom. I, you know, Tom, as always, it's a mind melt between us. Um, you guys get to hear the uh, conversations that Tom and I have over the phone. Um, these are certainly a little less salty and a little less emotional, but uh, today's not the day for us to hold back. Uh, what we have witnessed is monumental failure on multiple levels. And I'm just going to say it again. The American public and, and anyone who can should hold the press hold our leadership accountable for this failure. It's in the interest of, of our country and it's the interest of our allies. The allies we abandoned in Afghanistan, the, the soldiers and, and, and government officials and policemen and civilians who fought and died to, beside us for, some, for something that they hoped for, that we left them in the lurch. It's disgraceful. And it's days like today that I'm ashamed to be an American. On that cheery note, uh, we'll, we'll wrap up the podcast. So, hey, listen, uh, Bill. How many times do you say that? I, I pretty much every episode now. Look, I mean, Bill and I know people who have died in recent weeks, folks. Uh, we know people who are trying to get out right now. So we've tried to hold our emotions in check on all this. Uh, obviously, we can't do that entirely, and some of it comes through. But this incompetence has cost a lot of lives, and there needs to be accountability. And so I'm going to leave on that note. Thank you for listening to this uh, thoroughly depressing episode of Generation Jihad. You can follow us online or download our podcast anywhere you listen to your podcast. I have a whole list of sites you're supposed, I'm supposed to read off that I don't have in front of me, and I'm just not going to do it this time. Uh, the, to Americans and Afghans, uh, well, the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan rises again. To all those counterterrorism analysts who made excuses for the Taliban for years, well, you own this too. Take care. <laughs>